Well, let's pray together. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And from this passage of Scripture, Lord God, we understand that the end of our prayers, the goal of all our prayers for one another, our prayers for ourselves, even as we pray now, is that you would make us worthy of your calling, O God, your calling upon our life in Christ, that you've called us out of this world to be your own, this calling that you've given us to salvation, to suffering, to sanctification, we just pray that you would show that it's your work in our life and truly cause us to see that you are making us worthy of our calling. We also pray, as the scriptures teach us how to pray, that you would fulfill these faith-filled, faith-driven desires for good works that come from within us. They don't come from us alone, but because you have placed your spirit on us and you have called us to yourself and So you work within us this desire to do things that please you, to do good works for your mission, for serving one another. Whatever you put on our hearts and our minds, we ask that you would fulfill those good desires by your power, and that it would be seen that it's by your power that they get accomplished. We also pray, as the Scriptures teach us, may you, O Lord Jesus Christ, may you be glorified in us in our lives, may be glorified through us as we represent you as your people in this world, and that you, Lord Jesus, would be glorified because of who we are, who you've made us to be, who you're causing us to become. We also pray that we would find our glory in you, in glorifying you, in sharing what you've given us in salvation and in life. We hope for that final day when we know that all will be revealed, and our glory will be wrapped up in your glory. We pray that you would do all of these things in us by your grace. By your grace, God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, before we get into the scriptures this morning, I wanted to uh, just show you the book of the month, as I always put in the news and notes. This month, it's Praying with Paul. Uh, Call to Spiritual Reformation by Don Carson. This book has actually been out for quite a while, but it was recently updated and reprinted. It's a wonderful book because it it teaches us how to pray God-guided prayers in our life. And so just like it says, praying with Paul, uh, it helps us see how we can pray as the scriptures teach us to pray. It's a very simple book. It's very easy to read and highly practical. So as he goes through various prayers of the Apostle Paul and and puts them before us, then he'll take a break and give us a whole chapter on practical points and application on how we can make our prayer life richer as we pray according to the Scriptures. So I recommend this book to you. Oh, by the way, it comes with a study guide. So I know it's summer break for most small groups, but as you're looking toward the fall, here's another option for you of what you might do in your small groups, um, is, is actually studying this book together on prayer. So I would highly recommend that for you. 
Well, today we're going to continue then, in our, we're getting back to our, the Gospel of Luke. We took a brief break to do a mini-series in Colossians. But now we're back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, starting in verse 41. So the text is printed for you in your bulletins, but you can follow along in your Bibles. And at the storyline, you know, the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all just tell the story of Jesus Christ when he was here on the earth. And toward the end of every Gospel, we get to the point where Jesus accomplishes the work he came to do, to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised for our justification. So we're almost to that point in the Gospel of Luke, but right before we get to that section, there are these controversies that Jesus is doing some final teaching in Jerusalem and in the temple precincts before his passion begins. And so we saw a lot, five of the, four of those already in chapter 20, and today we're on the fifth one. So if you sort of glance back through chapter 20, you see that the first and most important controversy was whether Jesus really has authority as the Son of God to be teaching the way he does. And people try to test him, to trap him. And then there's a second controversy, and uh, Jesus tells a parable and talks about the lack of spiritual fruit in people's lives who claim to be so religious. And then there's the third and the fourth controversies that are really set up as traps, and we looked at those last time we were in Luke, where Leaders try to trap him regarding the question of paying taxes, and then the question on the resurrection of the body. Well, now we get to the most important test of all, because all four of those tests, all the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus, while this last test, Jesus puts a test to them, and they fail the test. But this test is going to be Jesus' own test to them, the most important one, and that is, who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? And he's going to bring up Psalm 110. And he puts before them the test of David's greater son. So these verses at the end, chapter 20, verses 41 to 44, famous verses quoted all throughout the New Testament. Uh, Psalm 110 is quoted all throughout the New Testament. But he is now challenging the leaders, and he's really disclosing who he is with this test. Because, obviously, he's saying he's the one who fulfills it, his identity. The conclusion is that Jesus clearly is the Son of David, as the psalm declares. He clearly is the divine Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God. And a lesson that's been learned all along throughout these controversies that comes to a head here today is that how people seek after God will affect how they really see Jesus when Jesus shows up, you see. Because whether they accept Jesus as Messiah or they reject him shows the validity of whether or not their seeking after God was really a seeking after God or if it was just religious show. Now, of course, if people put their faith in Jesus, they will receive salvation and their lives will be radically changed. Well, Luke is making the theology of the Messiah, the Christ, very clear here in verses 41 to 44 for us. And then he presents two examples for our consideration on religious pursuit. And uh, we'll read the sections as we go. But then in verses 44, 45 to 47, there's a warning against a false religious pursuit. Well, many people are trapped in this, just like the scribes and the, and the leaders at the time were who weren't really seeking. And then there's an encouragement in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 21 
where there's an encouragement toward a true pursuit of God, a holy pursuit of God. And we're really just given two examples here. And we're looking at this controversy of one Psalm 110. So, the first example of people not really following and pursuing after God is given by the, by the scribes in verses 47 through 40, 45 through 47. And then in the beginning of chapter 21, we see an example of someone who's truly pursuing God. And we see their hearts by the example. And this is the most famous controversy, perhaps, for the early church. It's why we have parallels in Matthew's gospel account, in Mark's account. And it gets repeated and referred to throughout the New Testament. It's remained an important part of the church and its understanding of who Jesus is. And so it's Luke's desire, and ours this morning as well, that we would really see who Jesus is this morning from this text as the Son of David, the Son of God, and worship Him all the more. So let's begin. First, the theology is made very clear. So, But Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And so Jesus already answered all their tests very successfully. He passed them all. In fact, he often put them to silence, or the crowds were excited over the answers that he gave. Well, now he's going to test them with the most significant test of all. The real issue are not all these issues they brought up about taxes or about the resurrection. Those aren't the main issue. The main issue that Jesus brings up is, who's the Messiah? And the answer is obviously intended. Jesus is the Messiah. And so this question then gets posed right away. He sets up the test. How can it be that the Christ, that is the Messiah, is David's son and Lord? That's the test. That's the question. That's, how can he be both David's son, and Lord. So these two identities seem to be in opposition to one another, as you read through the psalm that David composed. A descendant is not greater than his ancestor, so even if the psalm is talking about some kind of an ideal ruler, the use of the word Lord is really inappropriate in this place. But yet Matthew and Mark make it very clear that this psalm was composed by the Spirit of God. You see, there are, there are growing hopes among the Israelites at this time period, that a Davidic ruler would come, that the Messiah would be there, that he would rescue them from the grip of Rome. And so when Jesus brings up this test question, who's the Christ? It's a very contemporary issue. It's an important question that people are considering. Now, first of all, we learn from the psalm that Jesus quotes that the Messiah would be a son of David, a descendant of David, according to the covenant that God had made with him. Two classic passages of Scripture that are referred to here. Um, they speak of Solomon, but they speak way beyond Solomon to the eventual descendant who would be the real Messiah, the full Christ indeed. And that would be 2 Samuel 7, 13. It's the first one and following. It says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, his kingdom, forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this king will reign forever. And then in Psalm 89, 29, I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens, 
I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But it's more than that. So people understood that the psalm and the expectation spoke appropriately of a descendant of David who would be a wonderful, great king who would reign forever. But there's more to the story. The answer is not just that simple. There would be more. And he would have to be more than just from David's lineage because the prophecies are also clear that he would have to be divine in order to fulfill all the promises that the Messiah would fulfill. So, for example, Isaiah 9, 6, in this paragraph we know so well, we quote it every Christmas season. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and then his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So this prophecy is also well known. And then there's the prophecy in Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In, the, in those days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So this is Jesus' whole point in our storyline with Psalm 110, verse 1, and his question at the very beginning of his test and at the end of his test. And that is, how can it be that the Christ is David's son? David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? That's the test. Jesus' point is that this designation, this term Lord, in this psalm, really means God. It's a royal psalm, definitely, but it's a special royal psalm that speaks through Solomon to the Messiah who would come. It really only has one single referent, and that's Jesus Christ. And so the psalm speaks and looks to the Messiah as both the son of David and the son of God. And so Jesus is affirming, yes, the Davidic lineage of the Messiah, but also in addition, he's applying that that's not adequate to fully describe who the Messiah would be. And so he is not subtle here at all, like we might think he is. The Messiah would also be divine. It's obvious that he's making this claim openly about himself. He truly is the one that Peter would declare in his confession in Matthew 16 when Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so even according to Psalm 110, which we'll look at briefly at the very end today, speaks of what Jesus is doing now as the Christ, as he reigns on high from heaven, having resurrected from the grave. 
And he's distributing his blessings to his people. He's crushing his enemies. And he's establishing his kingdom as the gospel goes forth. And Jesus will return one day and fully establish his kingdom on this earth. Well, Luke has been showing us all throughout his gospel that this is exactly who Jesus is. It's one of the major purposes of him writing. If you go back to the very beginning of Luke, verse, chapter 1, verse 30, and the angel said to her, speaking to Mary, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he shall be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is what Luke has been showing us. Here, it reaches yet another climax in the story of the Gospel of Luke. The theology is made really clear at this point. Matthew and Mark tell us that the leaders were unable to answer the test of David's greater son. It's too hard of a test. They don't really know how to answer it fully, and so they stopped asking questions after this. It's too hard to conceive of what Jesus clearly implies. Not only do they not want to admit it, but to understand it is beyond their comprehension that he would identify himself in such a way. And Luke leaves out that part about the leaders as he tells the story because he wants to put the question to his readers, to us. How do you answer the test of the greater son of David? Who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? Is it Jesus, as he said? How people seek after God is shown by the fact of how they respond to Jesus when he is put squarely before their eyes. The religious pursuits are now revealed for what they truly are. So we go then now to two examples, and Jesus immediately goes to this example about warning about false religious pursuits. Mark ends the story here, the episode that we just read, and the great crowd heard him gladly. The crowd loved the test because they all the leaders failed the test, and they could see the difference between who Jesus is and what he's claiming and what these religious leaders were saying at the time. People could see the difference. And so Jesus makes a very public statement, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. So he's going to comment publicly on the fact that these scribes and other religious leaders couldn't pass his test. His audience has been growing, Jesus' audience, and now he speaks to everyone who's going to listen. He's been very outspoken against the scribes and religious leaders many times before. For example, chapter 11 of Luke's Gospel. So what's unique about this episode? There's something different here. By his warning and condemnation, he's explaining and answering really the questions that we have, which are, so why didn't they pass the test? Why didn't they get what Jesus was saying? Why didn't they understand Psalm 110? Why didn't they believe in Jesus? And what's going to be the result of failure to do so? Well, Jesus gives the warning here very clearly. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor 
at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus here is attacking the scribes, the teachers of the law. If you look back in verse 39 briefly, they loved how Jesus took the Sadducees to task in their test, right? If you look back in 39, the scribes answered, Oh, teacher, you've spoken well. Well, Jesus is going to turn on the scribes now. They praised him for how he answered the Sadducees' question about the resurrection, but he exposes their religious hypocrisy. He doesn't side with them. Because what he's saying is you look at this list of things, six things, they all point to one, one underlying motivation. They love themselves more than they love God. That's who they are. The religion is just another way to show how much they love themselves and how much other people should praise them. And that's why they didn't get the test of Psalm 110, because they're looking in the wrong place. They sought to be noticed and to be honored by people for their piety. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with giving people the respect that is due them in the human realm of things, but these men went way beyond what was proper. And Luke rehearsed the six examples. They've come to, first two, they've come to love public respect through their clothing, the robes that they wear, and the greetings that they would demand in the marketplaces that would somehow show them superior to the rest of society. And so, put simply, these religious leaders, they wore very expensive, ostentatious, flowing robes that symbolized their scholarship and their prestige in the religious community and the authority that they had. And they also loved receiving respectful greetings in the marketplace that went beyond what was normally considered respect for people of their stature. That is, for example, people were expected when they walked by to rise to their feet and speak openly and loudly some kind of a special greeting that would praise them for how great they are. That's what was expected. The third and fourth examples, they've also come to love the front seats in the synagogues and the seats of honor at dinners that would show them closer to God than other people and would also show that really people should be blessed to be in their presence because they really did think that they were God's gift to humanity. So when they were seated in synagogues, they would sit near the elders and the scrolls and the front on the platform. And when they were at dinners, they would sit in the center of the U-shape, set up so they could sit next to the host. The fifth one, They've come to love the lucrative situation of being legal experts and guardians. It's a good position to be in. So these religious leaders were supposed to help the defenseless. They were supposed to help especially widows in legal matters. But instead, as Jesus said, they devour their houses. Meaning, possibly many different things, that they used their legal position and supposedly, under the guise of helping them, would mismanage their funds abused their office, maybe overcharged for what they did, maybe decided to take pledges that they knew could never be repaid, and so they would eventually, bit by bit, bite by bite, devour the house of these widows. Or maybe even they just took advantage of hospitality. But they profited from their role 
Sixth, they've come to love the role of being the public prayers, adding pretense upon their pretense. They love to pray long prayers in public. You can pray long prayers in private, but in public, don't keep them so long, right? But they love the longer the better, the more religious phrases they could throw in there, the better. Because it made them look so impressive and so religious. Well, Jesus makes it clear they're going to receive a greater condemnation. And it's going to be a greater because their hypocrisy is so great. So Jesus' warning is simple, to beware. Beware of these people, but also beware of being like these people. Because it's a temptation for everyone. Again, this explains why they didn't get the Psalm 110 test. Because they were too concerned about showing off how spiritual they were that they actually missed who Jesus Christ was. You see, how people actually seek after God, many people say they do, but you have to find out what they're really seeking after. But how they go after this pursuit and what they know of the Bible, what they don't know of the Bible, what they obey from the Bible, that's going to affect a lot how they're going to really see Jesus. So then Jesus goes immediately into an encouragement of a true pursuit, an opposite contrast, in verses 1 to 4. And so Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put all that she had to live on. Perhaps it's the very mention of leaders taking advantage of widows that prompts this story. But we should also understand that people like this poor widow, these are the kinds of people who are going to read and understand Psalm 110. People that are humble. They're going to believe in the Messiah when he comes. And so yes, in verses 1 to 2, we can make a general application. Jesus observes our giving but in verses 3 to 4, it's pretty clear that he's teaching way beyond the concept, the topic of giving. So in verses 1 and 2 again, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two leptas. And so Jesus goes apparently past the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women, and that's where the offering boxes are, 13 of them. And he goes to watch people put their offerings in them. And, of course, the offerings are used to supply the needs for various functions of the temple. But he's close enough to observe exactly what people are putting in and hear their announcement, because that was common to announce what you put in. And Jesus would have observed, like you would expect, generally speaking, that people would put in moderate amounts of money. But we're to notice that he's drawing attention to many, many rich people who are putting in good gifts and one poor widow who puts in two leptas. The rich gave larger sums, certainly sums they, they could afford, and that was good. You know, Jesus is not condemning them in this passage here. But the poor widow gave what we would say the equivalent of pocket change. And it was everything, and uh, she couldn't afford to really do that. So Jesus was struck by the way these people gave to God, especially the way this poor widow gave. She knew what God required from her, even though she was poor, because she surely had memorized Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
she knew what God was worth. And so she gave accordingly. She gave with dignity. And she gave with blessing. And she gave with honor. You know, we also know, too, that many people don't give that way. It's very common for people to just simply look at what's left over in their bank accounts when it's time to give and give what they feel they can afford and maintain the lifestyle choices that they've already decided upon. And it probably seldom occurs to many people today that Jesus closely watches our giving as well. Well, anyway, enough about that. Jesus then teaches more about things than just giving here because he's talking in verses 3 and 4. He says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. They all contribute out of their abundance, but she gave out of the poverty. She gave her life, all she had to live on. You see, a true seeking after God and salvation, a person who's truly spiritual, who's looking for God and the fulfillment of the scriptures, is going to be a person who totally surrenders their life, their self to God. That's what this woman and why she, who she is and why she's commended and why the scribes and leaders are condemned by Jesus. Notice the sharp contrasts here. All those who put in did so from their abundance, Jesus says. That is, from their margin. The one poor widow put in two small copper coins, and she did so from her poverty, he says. They gave, she gave from her life, not margin. She probably earned that small amount of money the day before, and it was all she had, on, had to live and buy the necessities for the day that she was in. So she really did put in all that she had to live on. In other words, they put in tokens. She put her life in that offering box. Jesus also comments here that the poor widow put in more than all of them. So Jesus here is not even just considering the rich people. He's counting every other single person that day. He watched them all. And he says that this woman who put in two small copper coins, she put in more than all those people combined. Now, obviously, you could analyze this in a couple different ways, and you could say, well, by percentage of income, she definitely gave the most. By her intention of her heart, she definitely gave the most. But there are also many other ways we can think about how she gave more than the rest. She had more faith, she had more gratitude, she gave more sacrificially, she gave more generously, she gave her whole life, it had more significance to her, what she was putting in, she gave it for the treasury of the Lord, she gave it to honor God. And so here's an encouragement toward the holy pursuit of God. This is the kind of giving, of course, that Christ wants from his followers, and I hope many of us know and understand this woman's faith here. She's bursting with delight to do this. And I hope we're encouraged by her example to become a disciple like she is. And in our storyline in Luke, you see, it's people like this poor widow who will read and understand Psalm 110 and believe that Jesus is the Messiah when he says he is and continue to grow in grace and knowledge and truth in him. You see, how people seek after God and what they know or don't know about the Bible, whether they apply it to their life, that's going to affect how they 
think about Jesus when he shows up. And if people come to Jesus and see him correctly for who he truly is, of course, he'll change their lives. It was an unfortunate chapter break here that we've noticed this morning because all these three episodes go together and they proclaim Jesus' identity as the Messiah. The two examples are extremely important to consider for those who really want to know God. So why did the leaders reject Jesus? Because they really weren't pursuing God. That's a hard thing to say and understand because it looks like they are. Because they were so religious. Well, Jesus is saying, don't follow those people. Because they're going to be condemned for their charade of seeking God. And the question that Luke poses to his readers is simply, are you really seeking God? Are you just pretending to seek God? Examine your own heart. You can look at the widow to see that. That's what a truly penitent person looks like in practice, a person who loves the Lord. What does it really look like to have a true religious pursuit? That's a good question. And it looks like this widow who really sought to know, to obey, and to live her life with joy. We should follow her. She's the blessed one in the story, and she received great understanding because she had a close relationship and pursuit after God. So we who already believe, though, when we go through this story here in Luke, and we get more than we bargained for in a way because we we get this whole story about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God, which we'll talk about in a moment, but we also get the added blessing of two discipleship lessons stuck in here as well. The first one, of course, is that warning against scribes, against, against religious hypocrisy, right? And we think about how they're described. I mean, it's, it's a really wonderful description. Um, you see, these, these men were hypocritical. That is, they just simply, they were pretenders. That's what the word means. They weren't practicing what they preached, as we say. Um, they were also superficial and legalistic. As you go back and you can look at some of the other examples in Luke from chapter 11 and, and other places. But they maintained... They didn't, they didn't maintain a profound sense of obedience and love for the Scriptures. They, they made up their own rules for religion and worship that weren't from Scripture. And they tried to impose them on other people. But of course, only they themselves could keep the rules. And it didn't matter how you interpret them, they're always right. So they're, they're superficial, and they're legalistic, and they're proud, showy, self-promoting people because they use the religion to draw people's attention to themselves. So good disciples and good leaders aren't hypocritical. They practice what they preach. And, and as we all know, we are growing in our biblical understanding and see good disciples try to continually match their life to their growth of their understanding of the Bible. Good disciples aren't superficial. They aren't legalistic. They don't add to God's word. They don't take away from it. They obey it in detail. And they're not proud and showy and self-promoting. They just simply live out the gospel in humility and modesty. Turn the other cheek. And they're eager to help others do the same. They're not interested in trying to somehow put down other Christians. The second discipleship lesson is just the obvious one from the poor widow is to be a model giver. She's set up as an ideal here. We're never going to be able to meet her level of spirituality. That's 
part of the point is that she's forever above us. Good luck trying to do what she did. She's put forth this way as an example to forever be our example of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, those discipleship points are certainly worthy of a lot of consideration for us on our own personal devotions and time in God's Word and prayer. But the heart of the passage is really that Psalm 110 reference that Jesus brings up, the final test. So let me just read Psalm 110 to you. It's a very short psalm. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, Psalm 110 is the most quoted section of the Old Testament in the New Testament. The most quoted. Perhaps that's inspired by Jesus himself in this very episode that we're looking at today. Now, this this last Easter, we spent a tremendous amount of time in Psalm 110. But just to remind you of how much it's referenced, verse 1, where it just simply says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's quoted seven times in the gospel accounts. It's quoted once in the book of Acts, four times in four different letters by the Apostle Paul, and four times in the book of Hebrews. And it's referencing the whole psalm and its whole meaning and its whole future. Verses 4 and 5 is quoted twice in the book of Romans and eight times in the book of Hebrews. The two parts of the psalm are obvious. It speaks about the kingship of the Messiah and the priesthood of the Messiah. Who the Messiah would be in his fullness. And verse 1 most directly applies to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and he reigns on high. That's how the New Testament uses it. Verse 4 applies most directly to Jesus' sacrifice of himself in our place on the cross and his priesthood when he offered up himself on our behalf to God the Father. And of course, you see, the psalm has an eschatological final reality when the conquering Messiah returns for his people at the final day of the Lord. In other words, another way to look at Psalm 110 is to simply say, that Psalm 110 is the gospel story in the Old Testament, in one section. It's a psalm that's given to us to understand more and more and to rejoice in and who Jesus is, son of God, son of David, high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and the conquering Messiah who will come on the final day of the Lord. And if that's a topic you really want to explore more on your own, It's really simple to do because the book of Hebrews is all about explaining that. So if you read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, you will get the fullness of the understanding of that passage. See, Luke wants us to discover as his readers who Jesus really is this morning and to constantly go back to the scripture here and read and pray over it and other portions of the New Testament that speak to this. So let me pray for us and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. 
But Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are the Most High, that you are the Son of God, the Son of David, that you are the Messiah, that you are the High Priest after the order of Melchizedek, that you offered up yourself in our place for our sins, a substitute, the perfect one for us sinful people. We thank you that you then purify us because we put our faith in you and we have our new life in you. We pray this morning now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that you would be with us and that you would increase our faith and our devotion to you. Amen.